0: we rejoin the Feast of the Tabernacle teaching that began in the beginning of John chapter 7. If you remember from last week, the account of the woman caught in adultery at the well was a bit of an excursion from what began in chapter 7 and what will continue to go all the way through the end of chapter 8. If you remember at the end of our narrative with the woman caught in adultery, the Bible tells us that all of her accusers, meaning the religious leaders, left. And so she was standing alone with Jesus. And here, as we pick up this narrative, the Feast of the Tabernacles, we see that there is now this large crowd of Pharisees and religious leaders who have gathered, indicating that the text that we read last week was added at some point much later than John's Gospel was originally written. It's still authoritative scripture, but seemingly is out of place. We see... Uh, A little bit of a clue with that in verse 12 where you see the word again and again Jesus spoke saying and that indicates it is continuation of what was taking place in the earlier dialogue. You'll see the same usage down in verse 21 where it says and again Jesus spoke saying. So it's an indication that there was a little bit of an interruption in the flow from the teaching in the temple that began in the early verses of chapter 7, and we'll continue in our text today. So previously, what Jesus has established in his teaching uh, in the temple with the religious leaders and those who were gathered around him, even though John doesn't identify exactly what Jesus was teaching, only that he taught, we know that in this Jesus taught that his teaching was not his own that it came from the Father. He didn't think it up, he didn't originate it on his own. It was in accord with what the Father would want him to say. He challenged his hearers in John 7:17 7, by saying, "If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching." Meaning that if you have questions about the authority of what it is that I am saying, believe in me, put your faith in me and God will reveal to you the truth. Of these things that I am teaching. He also went on to say that his, glory, his teaching does not glorify himself, but his teaching is for the glory of the Father. And if you'll notice in our modern church, church culture, many of these rapidly growing churches, the leader seemingly is the one who is getting all the glory. You're such a great teacher, you're such a great leader, you're so charismatic, and Jesus is just kind of an afterthought in the presentation of meeting the perceived needs that people have in their lives. So Jesus says that I'm not glorifying myself. If I were glorifying myself, then you would all love me. You wouldn't hate me and want to end my life. He would also go on to say that his teaching enables righteous judgment. And this stems back... In John chapter 5, when Jesus here healed the crippled man who was going to the pool at Beth- Bethsaida for 38 years, hoping that the water stirring would heal him of his ailment. So Jesus enables righteous judgment about what he does and about what he says as opposed to the worldly hypocritical judgment that was so pervasive within the religious leadership ranks. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and they called that a violation, but they themselves will circumcise on the Sabbath and that's perfectly good for them because that is what... They decided for themselves. So after this initial teaching, Jesus extends an invitation in John chapter 7, and he says this, he says, if anyone will come to me and drink, he would be provided with a spring of living water, indicating that he was a fulfillment of one of the primary ceremonies of the Feast of the Tabernacles and that is the water-pouring ceremony. So he extends this invitation. There's a bunch of division with those who are hearing. Some are committed. They believe him to be the Christ. Some are cynical and reject his teaching. Some were confused, like the temple guard, who were highly trained Levitical priests, who were confused because they heard Jesus speak, and they were amazed because they'd never heard anybody teach like that, but they didn't really know what they were supposed to do. And then some, like Nicodemus, were curious, and was urging the fellow, his fellow Pharisees not to rush to judgment, but to hear this man out and to give consideration to these things that he is saying. Well, that's kind of a review of what was two, passage, two sermons in, in a lengthy passage. So now we rejoin the narrative in the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 12 through 20. And Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I, where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even if your law, excuse me, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. We're going to look at this in one lengthy lengthy section with several main points. So what we're going to see here is the Savior revealed. He's being revealed to the people who are listening to him. It's not the first time that he has revealed his true identity. As we continue to go through this passage, you're going to hear a lot of the similar things being repeated so the first thing we notice here is the setting now to appreciate the setting we need to jump down to the beginning part of verse 20 it says these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple so again we see that he is in the temple but john identifies specifically where in the temple he is he is in what is called the court of women in the court of women, there were these large treasury boxes. They were these trumpet-shaped receptacles that you could go and give your offering to. In each of those... Uh, trumpet-shaped receptacles indicated how that money was to be used. There were various offerings and various taxes. And so when you went to present your offering, you did so in the court of women at one of these 13 receptacles. And so this is where Jesus is. This is also likely where Jesus would have been when he cleansed the temple earlier in the Gospel of John. So this court of women is a very, very busy place. Nearby is a hall where the Sanhedrin Council would meet, and it's very likely that this religious leadership group can hear Jesus' teaching because they are within earshot of his location. Now, as a point of reminder, we'll talk a little bit again about this feast of Tabernacles. This was the greatest of the three feasts. It was the most celebratory of the feast. It was at the end of the harvest. The work was done and the people were ready to celebrate God's provision for them. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was this occasion. So there was a the water pouring ceremony, which was a very important part of this feast. The water pouring ceremony was not only a reminder of God's provision for them in the period of the wilderness wandering. But it also was a foreshadowing of the anticipation of the blessings that would come to the people of Israel in the Messianic age. Isaiah 55.1 Everyone who thirsts come to the waters. And so each morning... The priest would go and draw water from the Pool of Siloam and carry it in a procession back to the temple. There would be a blast from a trumpet made out of a ram's horn, the shofar, to mark the joyous occasion. And along this processional route, the worshipers would recite Isaiah 12.3, Therefore you would joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And once they got to the temple, the priest would march around the altar while the temple choirs. The Temporal Choir sang the Hallelujah Psalms of Psalm 113 through 118. That's a very lengthy passage of Scripture. And during this entire time, they were celebrating God's provision and looking forward to the coming of the living water that Jesus was now proclaiming to be accomplished in himself. So the counterpart to the morning water-pouring ceremony was the lamp-lighting ceremony that took place each evening in the Feast of Tabernacles. So in the Court of Women, there were four huge oil-burning candelabras that stood 75 feet high, and when these were illuminated, it is said that it would illuminate the entire city of Jerusalem. It was said that not a single porch... Would be, would not a single porch would be unaffected by the light of these candelabras that took, that were lit in the court of women during the feast of the tabernacles. So when they were lit as a part of the feast, the holiest of Israel's men were selected amongst themselves to lead, along with all the people, dancing and joyous singing and celebration, singing songs of praise beneath all of these candelabras in this enormous court of women. It is said that the celebration took place each night and would last for several hours going into the early hours of the morning. So the ceremony of light was not only a reminder of the pillar of light, that guided the people of Israel during the period of the wilderness wandering, it is also a reminder that in the future, in the Messianic age, God would send His light into the world that was so darkened by the reality of sin. So it is in this setting that Jesus has not only declared that come and drink and I will give to you springs of living water, it is here that Jesus makes the declaration that I am the light of the world. Verse 12, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. This is the second very intentional I am statement that we find in the Gospel of John. Not only is he the bread of life, which he claimed to be after feeding of the 5000 which was actually closer to 20 to 25000 people he is claiming to be the light of the world and as we heard in our psalm this morning light is a very prominent theme in old testament usage that identifies the very presence of god we read in exodus 12 as excuse me exodus 13 as it relates to this pillar of light that god pro- provided for the nation of israel in Exodus 13, 21 and 22, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, and they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people for forty years God affirmed His presence with the nation of Israel in this light that was provided by God Himself. As the nation of Israel was exiting from Egypt in their 430 years of slavery, and they were confronted by the impassable Red Sea, we read how God protected them in Exodus chapter 14. The angel of God who had been going before them before going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it, so it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel and there was the cloud along with the darkness yet it gave light at night. Thus no one thus the one did not come near the other. All night long. So the impending death that would come to the nation of Israel at the hands of the mighty Egyptian army was stopped by this pillar of light that God provided for His people. The Israelites were taught to sing this song in, in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life Whom shall I dread? As we read and sang, the Word of God is often called light. In Psalm 119.105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God would speak through the prophet Isaiah in 49.6 about the servant who was going to come. Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And as was mentioned earlier, as a foreshadowing of the coming age of the Messiah... The eschatological age, when the Lord Himself would be the light for His people, God spoke again through the prophet Isaiah in 60.19, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. Over and over, on and on, throughout all of the Bible, God is presented to us, as an image of light, and you have to be certain that the Pharisees were well aware of the significance of light and the religious understanding, the significance of light and the light ceremony and the Feast of Tabernacles. And so when Jesus makes the declaration that He is the light of the world, they have no doubt what Jesus is claiming, and I am quite certain that this declaration has hit them like a ton of bricks. You are the light of the world? How can that be? We know who you are. We know where you're from. We reject your testimony. Over and over and over, the religious leaders reject the reality of the revelation of Christ, and there isn't anything anyone could have said or done that would have changed Their mind. Now, what's very interesting in this declaration that Jesus makes is that not only is He the light of the world, but He says, I will illuminate you. Latter part of verse 12 He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. The word follow here isn't used. To indicate in the general sense how the large crowds would follow Jesus and they would want to see his ministry and the miracles and maybe get a free meal out of the day, the word follow is used in a very specific sense that these are the people who are going to commit to Him and believe that He is, in fact, the light of the world and they are going to make a profession of faith that He is the Savior of the world as well. Since God's presence is symbolized so prominently as light, it stands to reason that the antithesis of that is Darkness. And so this is why Jesus says that I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Darkness represents sin, it represents the fall, it represents all that is wrong in the world, it represents all that is wrong with the world, it represents separation from God, it represents the realm of God's enemy. Satan himself. We read in the New Testament about this darkness in Romans 13:12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Colossians 1:13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then in Ephesians 6:12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so what Jesus says is not only am I the light of the world, but if you follow me, I will remove you from the darkness and I will give to you the light of life. You know, there is a time in almost every child's life or they are desperately afraid of the dark. Were your kids afraid of the dark? They needed a night light. They needed a hall light. They needed a closet light. They needed a bathroom light. They needed something that was going to dispel the darkness and provide for them a sense of safety and security. So this is an, this is an exact symbol of what you and I need in our spiritual lives, is that we need something to dispel the darkness and bring to us the light that our souls so desperately need. And this is exactly what He promises to us. We will no longer be trapped or ensnared in this darkness. We will be set free from it. We are transferred into His kingdom. We are now children of the light. And that's what Jesus will do for us when we come to Him. In the same way that physical light dispels physical darkness, Jesus dispels spiritual darkness for those who follow Him. He has come into this world to shed His light upon the world and then to lead us out of the darkness that we are so desperately trapped in. As those who possess the light of light, His light is to shine through us into this darkened world. This is our ministry. This is the biblical expectation for God's children, is that we would share the light in this world that we live in. Matthew five fourteen, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Just like the four massive lampstands in the court of women would illuminate the entire city of Jerusalem, that light could not be hidden. Neither is our light to be hidden. Ephesians 5.8 For you were formerly darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So when Jesus... When the Pharisees hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world and those who follow me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life, the Jews know exactly what Jesus is saying. There is no confusion and there is no misunderstanding. You could almost say in this single verse that you could present the gospel message to the world around us. You know, you are in darkness. You are separated from a holy God. You have no pathway to get to a holy God except for the light of the world through the life, the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And apart from a commitment to this light of the world, you will be hopelessly, desperately, eternally lost and separated from God. That's the essence of the gospel message. Jesus came to shed his light. To set a people free who were trapped in darkness. And if you're here this morning and confess to know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and claim to be a child of God, this is exactly what He has done for you. The church should always say Amen when they are reminded of the great truth that is in the Gospel message. I'll give you a chance. What do you say, church, this thing that God has done for you? Amen, because we can't do that for ourselves. We can't be good enough. We can't be moral enough. We can't be righteous enough. We can't be serving enough. We can't be giving enough. We can't be generous enough. We need a Savior. And the only way to the Father is through the Son. But we notice in our narrative here, the rejection that comes from the Pharisees. Verse 13, So the Pharisees said to Him, You are testifying about Yourself. Your testimony is is not true. Now what they are saying here very likely is a repeat of what Jesus said in John 5:31 and they are throwing Jesus's words back at him to mock him. John 5:31 Jesus says if i alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. What Jesus was saying in John 5.31 is that you are rejecting my claims because in your mind there is nobody that can validate those claims, but you're actually wrong because the Father who sent me is the one who testifies about me and he is the one that becomes the witness to the things that I say. Now this is a reminder of the Jewish law, the requirement then an illegal proceeding to establish fact, you had to have two witnesses. If you didn't have two witnesses, then in a legal proceeding, in a court environment, you could not establish fact. As an extension of this, the rabbis would often reject self-testimony because there wasn't any corroborating testimony to validate what was being said. In this context, Jesus isn't trying to create legal criteria For his testimony to be truthful, what he is doing is saying that in my self-testimony, it is truthful because what I say, the Father has told me to say. They are dismissing his claim because because for him to make the claim to be the light of the world in a legal environment would require a second witness to establish that fact and they're saying there is no corroborating witness so you can't testify about yourself we just blatantly reject your testimony but let me ask you the question is that really true is there not anybody else who could validate the claims that Jesus made to be the light of the world, to be the bread of life. If you just look at Jesus' ministry, there is a long list of people who could validate the testimony that Jesus made about Himself. Before John the Baptist was killed, he said, here comes the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. How about the crippled man that Jesus healed at the pool of Bethsaida Bethsaida, that this whole controversy is about. Could he not validate Jesus' claim? How about the demon-possessed man who was freed from a legion of demons? How about Jesus' own disciples and the things that they have seen? How about the woman who was healed of her hemorrhaging when she just touched the corner of Jesus' coat? How about Lazarus who was raised from the dead and the crowd of people who witnessed what Jesus actually did? Or how about the thousands of people who were part of the feeding of the 5,000 who got a free meal as Jesus has continued to make fish and bread out of nothing? Could they not validate the testimony that Jesus gave about He Himself being the light of the world. Oh, they absolutely could. But you know, it really wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter because they were determined to reject Him no matter what. It's the same thing in our world today. People can read a completed revelation that God has made of Himself to the world that He created, in an effort to show His love and His provision for their need. And day after day, year after year, people continue to reject the claims that Jesus has made about Himself. You would think that sinners who are hopelessly lost in the darkness who are in some capacity searching for truth, would just simply flock to the light. But in this strange paradox, people love the very darkness they live in and they determine to reject the truth. We read this weeks and weeks ago in John chapter 3, verse 19. The light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. There are people in this world who are always going to reject the imitation of Christ. There just simply isn't enough evidence for them. You could line up every man, woman, and child whose life has been affected by the truth of who Jesus is, and it simply wouldn't be enough evidence. It's the exact same thing that takes place here within this religious leadership. They are determined to reject Christ On all account. Now we see in our narrative here the fourth major point. We see the response that Jesus makes to this rejection. Verse fourteen a. Jesus answered and said to them, "Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true." Jesus says, regardless of what you think, regardless of what you say, my testimony is true. Jesus doesn't need external corroboration because His words are true. Now, he's going to go on and give two reasons why his testimony is true. The first one is this, letter A. His divine origin and his divine destination. Verse 14b. For I know where I came from and where I am going. Where did Jesus come from? He came from heaven. He's been in heaven from eternity past, except for the brief period that He entered into the world He created. And once the predetermined plan of redemption was completed, Jesus was going to leave this world and He was going to go back to His heavenly destination. So Jesus says, I know my heavenly origin. I know my divine destination. I know where I'm going. And I know where I came from. This is the sixth time that this has been recorded for us in the Gospel of John. It's a recurring theme within the Gospel of John. John wants to make sure that his readers understand unmistakably clear that Jesus is God in the flesh. This is the second time in the Gospel of John that the Pharisees have rejected this claim. Verse 14c goes on to say, But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So back in chapter 7, when they said to the effect that you can't be a prophet because you came from Galilee, they were unaware of his earthly birthplace. Jesus wasn't born in Galilee. Where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. But he was raised in Galilee. Jesus of Nazareth, which was in Galilee. And so they assumed that since he lived in Galilee, that he was also born there. But just as they were unaware of his earthly birthplace, they were ignorant and unaware of his divine origin. Jesus goes on to state the contrast and how they regard his testimony and the contrast will come in just a moment. So verse 14, 15a, he says, you judge according to the flesh. What he's saying here is the Pharisees are judging him and his testimony by purely human standards. They are judging him from a worldly perspective and a worldly point of view. So guess what happens when we judge Jesus and the claims of Jesus from a worldly perspective or from a worldly point of view? What's going to happen? Well, He's not going to be the light of the world, is He? He's not going to be the bread of life. He's not going to be the Lord and the Savior. He's just going to be a good teacher, a moral example, a prophet of sorts, but certainly not the God that He claimed to be. So in verse 15b, Jesus says, I am not judging anyone. Now this is very important to understand. He says, you judge by human standards. I am not judging anyone. So in this one verse, Jesus is not changing what the word judge means. He's saying, you judge by human standards. I don't judge by human standards. Jesus is not saying that I don't judge at all, which is what a lot of people want to claim because they don't want anybody to judge their sinful behavior. See, Jesus says He doesn't judge anyone. Well, they would be incorrect in saying that. To be sure, Jesus is going to pronounce judgment, and as we've already read in John chapter 5, for not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus is saying that I don't judge by worldly human standards like you do. I judge by a different set of standards. And this is what He goes on to say in the second reason for His testimony to be true is that He has a shared nature with the Father. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father Who sent me? Let me ask you this question. If you were able to pronounce judgment today and you knew that you knew that you knew beyond any shadow of the doubt that you had the Father's approval in that judgment, would you be pretty confident? Well, guess what? You can stand upon the authority of God's Word and you can render judgment on the sinful behavior, attitudes, action, lifestyles of other people and not be guilty of judgment. You are simply acknowledging what the Bible calls sin and you are judging that behavior based upon the absolute righteous standards of God himself as communicated through his words. So what Jesus is saying is, I am not judging by human standards. I am judging by the Father's standards because he is the one who sent me and my judgment is in him. His eternal existence, as well as his physical incarnation, it is all in the Father. Jesus is the God-man. He isn't just a man. He has this divine nature that enables Him to pronounce divine judgment because He is in the Father and the Father is in Me. This is what He is telling the Pharisees. He is in the Father and the Father is in Him. And he is again claiming equality with God, just like he did in John chapter 5, verse 17. Now, the human standards that the Pharisees used to judge Jesus was this You came from Joseph. We knew your father. You lived in Galilee. We know where you lived. We've seen your place. We've been in your village. We know your family. They judge by human standards. Unlike Jesus, who judges by the Father's standards, which is obviously going to be a righteous judgment. His judgment is not his own. His judgment is shared with the Father. So to challenge their rejection of his self-testimony, Jesus is going to show them that this is true based upon the very law that they are trying to use Against them. Verses 17 and 18. This is where Jesus uses the law about having two that have to corroborate the testimony in order for it to be truthful. Verses 17 and 18. Even in your law, the Mosaic law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. Jesus is saying, I don't disagree with you at all. Yeah, you have to have two. Witnesses, You have to have corroborating testimony in a legal environment to establish a matter of fact. And this is what he says. I am he who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me testifies, me, testifies about me as well. So that's what Jesus says. I testify about myself. That's one. The Father testifies about me. That's two. The first time we looked at this, we looked at the verses where there was an audible voice from heaven where the Father established a validation of Jesus' ministry at His baptism, at the, um, uh, the, temple, the temptation in the wilderness, and I forget what the third one is, but the Father has audibly testified about the validity of Jesus' claims, and so Jesus is saying, you rejected my self-testimony because there isn't a second witness to corroborate that well. You're actually wrong because the Father Himself is the one who gives witness to me. John 5.37 And the Father who sent me, He has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His form, and we've talked about this, is that those who believe in Jesus, those who love the Father, they have seen the Father, they have heard the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit. Those who know the Father and have heard the Father will believe in Jesus because the Father reveals that to them. This is an indictment that they are not true Israelites. Because they don't believe in the one that the Father has sent. Now, for you and I, no human witness no human witness can validate a divine relationship. But that doesn't mean that that divine relationship doesn't exist and that it isn't true. The human understanding of this divine relationship is only affirmed after there is a faith commitment. Let me say that again. You and I can't validate this claim of a divine relationship, but that doesn't mean that it isn't true. Our understanding of that divine relationship is revealed to us after we make a faith commitment to the one who claims to be one with the Father. This is what Jesus said back in John 7:17: 7, If anyone is willing to do his will... He will know of the teaching, the teaching that Jesus gives, whether it is of God or whether I speak. From myself, When you test the will of God, when you test the claims of Jesus, God reveals to you the truth of that. You see the Father, you hear the Father, and the affirmation of this divine relationship is then affirmed in your experience. It isn't dependent upon our experience, but it is affirmed once we've given our lives to Christ as Lord and Savior. Fifthly, we're going to see the confusion that exists within the Pharisees.
1: Verse 19a.
0: So they were saying to him, Where is your father? If the father is the one who's going to give testimony about you, if you are in the Father, and the Father is in you, where is your Father? Go get Him, and go show Him to us. They wanted a witness. They wanted somebody to come and corroborate this. So again, they're thinking in purely human terms, not in spiritual terms. And so they wanted to see this Father, so that He could confirm Jesus' claim. Now, what you and I might not remember, is that at this time, it is very, very plausible... And most believe that Joseph, Jesus' father, had already died. If you remember, we've talked about this recently, that in about six months, Jesus is going to enter back into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, and he is going to be killed. And it is at his crucifixion, when Jesus is on the cross, he looks down to the beloved disciple John, whose words we're reading, he says, Behold your mother. And he looks to his mother and says, Behold your son. So at the cross... Jesus is entrusting the care of his mother to the disciple John, which is an indication that six months earlier, which is where we are now, Joseph is actually probably not alive. And so their request to see his father is probably intended to be an insult to Jesus. Even if you could go get him, we know who he is. He's Joseph from Nazareth, that carpenter guy. He can't validate your claim. So the cause for the confusion that the Pharisees have here is is communicated to us in the last part of verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, You neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. What he is saying is, You think you know my father because you know who Joseph was. But Joseph wasn't my father. And just as you don't know my father, you don't know me. You think I'm Jesus, Joseph's son from Galilee, but I am in fact The Son of God, who existed eternally with the Father from eternity past. Who you think I am is not who I really am. I am the light of the world. If you knew who my Father really was, then you would know who I really am. Now, Jesus is going to continue to develop this theme through this dialogue that continues all the way through the end of chapter 8. And we're going to see recurring conversation, recurring statements, recurring claims as Jesus continues to share the truth about who he is. Now we end our passage with this, the latter part of verse 20, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus was on a divine timetable. There was nobody who was going to speed it up or slow it down. He was invincible until God said, now is the appointed time, and that's going to come in about six months. Here's what I want you to think about. As you think about Jesus' claim to be the light of, of the world do you acknowledge that we live in an incredibly dark world you know it's it's really it's sobering to read the news to hear about the kind of unthinkable behavior activity that gets reported to us It's unimaginable the kind of evil and wickedness that is celebrated in our world. You you read about some of these atrocities and there are people out there saying, man, bring it on, do it again, do it again. We live in an incredibly dark world. You and I have been saved from that darkness by no virtue of our own, but God's simple blessing to allow us to know the truth about who He is. So you and I have been saved from a very, very dark world. You and I have been transferred from a very, very dark place in our own lives. Not only did we live trapped in that darkness, we are surrounded by people who are still living in that darkness and they desperately need to see the light. Pray with me. God, would you... Would you just continue to reveal to us the the glorious grace that is in this gift of salvation? Father, would you humble us? Would you break up our self righteousness, any sense of entitlement that we might have in our lives? Would you show us, Father, that it's only through your goodness and your grace that we can allow, that we've been allowed to become your children? Would you teach us to value that with a greater sense of devotion? And Father, as you have given to us your light, we are now your light in the world. Would you help us to live that out in a way that points people to the true light? Would you break up the fallow ground in our heart? Would you convict us of our sin? Would you burden us to live a holy and righteous life? and to boldly share the truth with others as you give us opportunity. Fathers, we reflect on this gift of salvation. We give you thanks. We express our love for you. We give our love to you. We thank you for receiving our praise. We thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you for continuing to perfect us as we live out our days in this world. May they be lived for You in the light of Your glory and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship Him.